We are in Genesis chapter 10. And this is one of those passages that you get to and you wonder, why did God put this in the Bible? Because it's a long genealogy. These are the sons of, with a whole bunch of unpronounceable names, living in a places that I've never been and can't pronounce accurately. And uh, there's 32 verses of it. But we believe that all of God's Word is inspired, and all of God's Word is there for a reason, and uh, that God had a reason to put this genealogy there, and it's our task to try to understand that and figure that out, and hopefully we'll make some headway into that this morning. So let's, uh, let's begin with prayer, and then we'll, we'll dive right in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Thank you for this church family as you bring folks in and send folks out. Lord, uh, we are so grateful for what you're doing in our midst. Uh, Lord, this morning as we come to your word, we pray that you would give us a greater understanding of who you are and what you do and what you're like and the difference you make in our lives. Lord, we come to this text in Genesis 10 and these words are difficult uh, not only because they present us names which are strange and nations that we don't know, but because the purpose of a genealogy isn't really all that apparent. So we ask that you would open our eyes to see the lessons which you have given to us in your word, not just lessons for the people of God thousands of years ago, but lessons for the people of God today. And may we see again as we study this, uh, your word, that it is profitable for reproof and correction and training and righteousness, and we, may we be given even more confidence uh, in it as we study it today. For this, we need your grace and we need your spirit. As always, give us the desire to learn from you uh, this morning, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have played the board game Risk? Hands up, most of you. A few, you know have that wonderful experience still to come. But if you've ever played the board game Risk, you know it contains the large map of the world. And the object of the game is simple. Defeat all the other players and rule the world. Now, a note of caution here, you probably don't want to play this game with many of my children because they enjoy ruling the world. True? Yeah. Watch the girls. <laughs> but each player in this game is given armies of a different color, red or black or brown or blue or yellow or green. And the first step in the game is for the players to put their armies one by one on the various countries or regions on the board. Great Britain, Greenland, Japan, India, Middle East, Congo, Western United States, and so on. And when all the armies are in place, the game can begin. But there is a moment, and it happens in every game. Just before the first player takes their turn, everyone stops and studies the board to see the alignment of forces. He's really strong in Africa. I bet she makes a move for Europe. I'm going to have to fight him for South America. 
And if she gets India, she'll take all of Asia. And on it goes. There is a moment always when all the armies are in place and the fighting is about to begin and things grow silent. And then somebody rolls the dice and the armies go into battle. Too bad real war wasn't played on a board. But Genesis 10 is like that moment just before the first player takes their turn. It's a snapshot of the ancient world showing how the nations are arrayed in and around the Middle East, especially around the Holy Land. This is what the world looks like just before the game begins. I have a map there. Can we put that up? That in there? All right. There's a map on the back of your insert as well. And if you look at the map in the middle of what would be uh, uh, Israel, you see it says Canaan, and it's surrounded by all the ites. The, uh, you know, that sounds like insects. But it's the, you know, the Zemarites and the Arvidites and the Hathamites and the thisites and thatites. And then there's uh, people that go to the north and west. And uh, you see that throughout Asia Minor and heading west. People that are going south into Egypt and Africa, and then some into the Mesopotamia area uh, there. And that's all the countries and names and the tribes that are in Genesis 10 and how they begin to spread out over the known world. And those who've studied this chapter in detail remark on its amazing historical accuracy. It gives us a peek behind the curtain into the far reaches of early world history. There are 70 separate names in this chapter. Some of those names are people, some of those names are cities, others are names of tribes, and some are uh, nations or people groups. This is World History 101 is taught by Moses, who's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you enjoy history and geography and anthropology and you like to make connections between the ancient world and the 21st century, you will love Genesis 10. But all of us can gain something from this chapter because this is where we come from. This is our family tree. We're all in here somewhere. Commenting on this chapter, Martin Luther said, I thought this was really insightful. Look into the historical accounts of all nations. If it were not for Moses... What would you know about the origin of man? We would not know these things if God did not tell us. Science and research alone can never tell us. Luther called this passage a mirror to see who we really are, that we're so marred by sin, so divided one from another, that we can't know our own history unless God himself tells us. And this chapter is a sacred thread that joins the early morning of earth history to the rest of the Bible and ultimately to you and me. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter 10. Uh, if you don't, you can look on and uh, sort of follow along in the outline. We enter into a new section of the book of Genesis today. Uh, Moses himself partitions this particular chapter and gives it the heading, the Toledot of the sons of Noah. That's the generations of the sons of Noah. There's 10 of those in the book of Genesis, and they mark out uh, the uh, different sections of the book. 
And so we have, starting in verse 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This passage is an expansion of the sort of passing comments we got in Genesis 9 a couple weeks ago. And there it said in Genesis 9, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. From that little verse, we got a taste of the nations of the earth descending from Noah and his sons. And now we have this long catalog uh, given to us here in Genesis 10. The biblical scholar Cornelius Vanderwall uh, says, Soon the revelation of the Lord was to be restricted to the circles of Abraham's descendants. But before this revelation bids the nations farewell, all of them pass once more in review. And that's what we have here in Genesis 10. You know, just one more chapter, we'll get into Genesis 11. At the end of Genesis 11 and beginning of Genesis 12, we're going to be introduced to the father of Abram. And from that time on, for the rest of the book of Genesis, we'll be concentrating on one nuclear family and its descendants. But before we do that, the Lord holds in front of our eyes the nations to remind us that he has not forgotten the nations and that his people must be conscious that the nations descend from one bloodline and that God has his own providential plan uh, for them. So this passage serves to set the line of Shem, which will become the line of Abraham, the line of the Hebrews, in its international context to show how uh, they're related to all the other nations of the ancient world and to prepare the way for the story of Abraham. All of which brings us to our text this morning, Genesis 10. And even in this long list of names, this genealogical tree of the nations in the ancient world, there's a number of lessons to be learned. And I want to point your attention this morning to just a few of them. First of all, let me mention the passage outlines in a fairly straightforward uh, fashion following the genealogy. Verse 1 is the introduction. It's the title, the heading of the chapter, explains everything that's coming after it. Then in verses 2 through 5, you find the first section. This is the line of Japheth, one of the uh, sons. Then in verse 6 through 20, you get the line of Ham, recounted, the youngest son. And then finally, from verses uh, 21 to 32, the end of the chapter, we get the line of Shem, which is uh, what Moses is going to spend most of his time unfolding in the book of Genesis. But here he starts with Japheth, and it's apparent he does this because Japheth is the remotest of the people in relationship to the people of Shem and eventually to the Hebrews. They would take that whole northern part of Asia Minor and heading into Europe. Those would be uh, the sons and grandsons of Japheth. These are people who are on the coastlands and very far away, especially to the west. Then he recounts the line of Ham. And uh, Ham and the Hamites and their nations, particularly to the south of Canaan. Not restricted to Africa, uh, go south and extend out in both directions. And... Uh, 
And then, of course, there are the children of Shem, including the Hebrews. They're mentioned last because they're the focus of God's attention for the rest of the book. So rather than try to go through a list of nations and tell you all about them, I want to do this a little differently today. I'm going to loosely follow the outline, but I'm going to try to look from a big picture perspective, trying to see what God would have us learn from what is essentially a table of nations. So let's learn the lessons that God has for us here. And we start with the message, verse 1, that we can't forget the nations. We can't forget the nations. Look at verse 1. Here we're reminded that God's people are set among the nations as a light to the nations to be a blessing to the nations. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. First thing you notice is the line of Cain has been wiped out by the flood. And through Noah, only the line of Seth remains. So according to Moses, the whole human family is descended first from Seth and now from Noah and his sons. It was, there's tons of background detail. It was interesting to read. The DNA of everyone in the world is like 98.88% the same. So all of our differences, basically all the stuff we see, hair color, eye color, skin color, amounts to like 1.12%, and all the rest is the same. I thought that was fascinating, because we think we're all just so different from one another. But the reality is we're really not. Just the outside appearance looks different. But someday we'll get to heaven, get glorified bodies, and who knows what we'll look like. Probably, hopefully, God willing, not like this. But God is is setting the people of God, now descended from Seth and Noah and Shem and Eber, uh, down all the way to the line of Abraham. So we're being led down this path to the Hebrew people, which is going to bring us to the rest of the book. And uh, Moses is trying to, I think, set the context of the Hebrew people's relationship to all the other people. And as we'll see in Genesis and we see in the rest of the Old Testament, they don't always get along with the other people. But he wants us to understand that they are, in a sense, cousins. And so the people of God cannot forget the nations. The whole human family, because it's descended from Seth and Noah, shares a single source and origin. And the implications for this are tremendous. The book of Genesis is going to put an emphasis on the separation of God's people from the unbelieving world around them. But this doesn't mean that God's people can look upon that unbelieving world with a lack of concern. Again, Vanderwall says, because mankind is one in origin, Israel may not pretend that the calling to be a blessing to all the nations is something strange and incomprehensible. Those nations, after all, are their cousins. Those nations are the cousins of the line of Seth, the line of Noah, and of course the line of Shem. So this passage forces God's people, remember, they're out in the desert, time of Moses when this is being written, they've been uh, redeemed from slavery in Egypt, they've crossed the Red Sea, they've overcome Pharaoh, 
And now they're going to wander in the desert for 40 years waiting to enter Israel. And now they're being forced to view even their enemies as cousins who have a part in God's plan. One of the grandsons is named Egypt. They just escaped from Egypt. And all of a sudden they're being told, those people that you hated, that enslaved you for 400 years, where God led you out using Moses uh, through dramatic signs and wonders, you crossed the Red Sea, you watched all those Egyptians drown, that's family. And that's the point that Moses wants to get across. As horrible as that was, you're not allowed to hate them. And what we're, is being laid out is this tremendous missionary emphasis that's going to become one of the themes of the Scriptures. We see God's not simply concerned with the Israelites, but He has a desire to see all the nations brought to Him. Now, though God is going to leave the nations, and at the end of Genesis 11, focus on Abram and his line, it doesn't mean that He has no concern for the nations. The nations will have their own role in God's plan, and we'll see that in the very next section where we learn that God cares about those far away. God cares, verses 2 through 5. God cares about those far away. We look here at the line of Japheth, starting at verse 2. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Medai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Taras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Ripheth, and Togamah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, and Dodanim. And these from these, verse 5 is very important, from these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. So as we said, God deals with Japheth and Ham first. Derek Kidner, a Genesis commentator, says, of the three families of humanity, Japheth and Ham are dealt with first to leave a clear field to the history of Shem in the remainder of the book. And this is the shortest of these sections, but this language is here to remind us that God cares even about the nations that are farthest away from Israel. Look again at the language of verse 5. From these, the coastlands of the nations separated into their own lands, according to language, clans, and nations. The coastlands are used as an image of the very remotest ends of the earth. And God's interest in these remote ends of the earth uh, is there. And coastlands is a technical term, which means it has a very specific meaning for all the distant parts of the north and west. And that technical term is picked up by the prophets. Jeremiah and Isaiah both look for a day when God will come and visit judgment and salvation upon the Gentiles. And they base it on the language of Genesis 10.5. Again, these words, from these the coastland peoples spread in their lands. Now turn with me to Isaiah chapter 42. You can read along uh, if you want. And you can turn there. This passage is actually somewhat familiar to us. It's used often at Christmas time. 
as we're reading through the Messianic passages in the Old Testament. So let's see where Isaiah goes with this. Isaiah 52, the first five verses. This is a Messianic passage about the coming Messiah. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Isaiah is telling us that the sons of Japheth wait expectantly for the law of the Lord to be implanted in their hearts. And so Isaiah and Jeremiah see this reference in Genesis 10 to the coastlands, the remotest parts of the earth where the sons of Japheth dwell. They see it as a picture of the Gentiles coming to the one true Messiah. That's not all of us, but that's most of us. Most of the people here come from the line of Japheth. You should rejoice when you see that God cares about people who come from that line. It's tremendous missionary significance. If the Old Testament church is not allowed to be indifferent to the nations, then neither can the New Testament church. Last Sunday, we had a missionary here to tell us what God is doing on the Texas-Mexico border. Today, you heard about sending out one of our own to reach students in Charleston, South Carolina. Every year at budget time, the leaders of this church are challenged by some that we're not giving enough to missions and challenged by others that we're giving too much to missions. We can never be too cozy and determined simply to pat our own nest to look after our own people. We must always be looking out for the nations and determining to be a blessing to them. It is part of our calling as the spiritual sons of Shem, as children of Abraham, to be a blessing to the nations. And we see that grounded right here in Genesis 10. Now, there is a flip side to that message. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 25. I'm not going to read the whole uh, passage. You can begin skimming around verse 19. And as you see, Jeremiah mentions judgment from the Lord's hand which he is going to make all the nations drink of. Mentions that in verse 17. And then he begins listing all these nations which are going to have to drink from the judgment of the Lord. If you look down at Jeremiah 25, verse 22, he expands this. He says, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, and the kings of the coastland across the sea. And then you begin to see him list the names that we've just read here in Genesis 10. And what's Jeremiah's point? That God's judgment is going to be extensive, as extensive as the ends of the earth. So God hasn't lost sight of the nations, either for salvation in Isaiah or judgment in Jeremiah. So the people of God must not lose sight of the nations. It's one of the lessons that we learn. And that reminds us that though God's uh, purposes, especially in the Old Testament time with Israel, yet he has a plan uh, in the New Testament time which will come to fruition among the nations, among the Gentiles, 
even among the sons of Jacob. And that, of course, gets us back to this idea of there is a divine plan. And it's right here in Genesis 10. You can't get around it. God plans, God predestines, God chooses. That's just what he does. We may not like it, but that's what the Bible says. And this table of nations then, I think, presents us with uh, some great theological issues. And we see one right in this very next section. It aims to teach us, among other things, that prosperity doesn't equal blessing. Prosperity doesn't equal blessing. We move on to verses 6 through 20. And if you look with me there, we see the line of Ham. We're not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to zero in on one thing. These are fascinating genealogies. Great respect for all the people who work through all the meanings and the names. We just don't have time for that. So I'm going to try to skim the cream of the chapter and give you a very important message, which I think is here in the line of Ham. Look at verses 8 through 12. We see the story of Nimrod. It says, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth Ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Well, Babel, we get Babylon. If you read Daniel, it takes place there. And Nineveh, we know, is another great city. That's what the book of Jonah is all about. All this comes from Nimrod. Now, I want you to notice something about the story of Nimrod. Nimrod, of course, a descendant of the line of Ham. He's described in tremendously powerful terms. We're told, for instance, he's a mighty one on the earth, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Let me mention a couple of things about that. First of all, let me counsel you not to name your sons Nimrod. Nimrod in the Bible was a mighty warrior, and if you name your son Nimrod, he will know how to fight. Just trust me on that. He's going to learn how to defend himself. Seriously, notice that Nimrod, even in God's estimation, is a mighty man of the earth. God looks down from heaven and says, Nimrod is one of the most influential men on the earth. God's estimation, a mighty hunter before the Lord. But let me mention that it may well not mean that Nimrod was a hunter who bagged a lot of deer, a hunter of animals, but rather that Nimrod was a conqueror, a hunter of men who bagged a lot of nations. He bagged people not just animals. So there's a dark side to Nimrod's power and influence and status in the land. He is part of the line of Ham, that cursed line, and yet he is mighty in the earth. And those who dwell apart from God in their lives often accumulate a great deal of earthly success and influence. Living in the Washington, D.C. area, Nimrod speaks to where we live living in one of the wealthiest counties in the history of the world, Nimrod speaks to where we live. But his success and influence and power and prosperity 
is not necessarily a sign of God's blessing. In fact, it may be, in some cases, and I think in this case, a sign of God's curse. Because he allows them to receive their influence and their wealth in this life, and there is none for them in the life to come. And again, the power of Nimrod reminds us that the appearance of earthly prosperity and the reality of heavenly prosperity are not the same thing. Listen to what Matthew Henry says. Those under the curse of God may yet perhaps thrive and prosper greatly in this world. For we cannot know love or hatred, the blessing or the curse, by what is before us, but by what is in us. The curse of God always works really and always terribly, but sometimes it's a secret curse, a curse to the soul, and it does not work immediately. But sinners are by it reserved for and bound over to a day of wrath. Canaan here has a better land than either Shem or Japheth, and yet they, Shem and Japheth, have a better lot, for they inherit the blessing. And that's a lesson that we learn right here in Genesis 10. When we look at the story of Nimrod, a mighty conqueror on the earth, a mighty hunter, a conqueror, and yet he's not accounted as blessed of the Lord because earthly prosperity does not equal heavenly blessing. We should never forget that. That's a principle of Scripture. And we get it all the way back here in the middle of this long list of uh, uh, countries and people groups in the middle of Genesis. There's one last principle for us to glean from this passage. And that principle is that goodness is better than greatness. Look at verses 21 to the end. Goodness is better than greatness. I think in these verses we see the line of Shem. And we learn there about God's unmerited favor. Even the line of Shem is not without sin. You remember Abram came from a line of idolaters. Terah, descendant of Abar, is an idolater. So Abram's not loved because Abram was righteous. Abram was made righteous because he was loved by God. So even in the line of Shem, God's unmerited favor rests on a particular line. In fact, in Genesis 11, we'll see the line of Shem further narrowed to one more particular line of all his descendants. And it's out of that line that Abram comes. But it's interesting that Shem and Japheth are linked here in verse 21. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Abar, and the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. They are linked together. This forecasts the calling of the Gentiles, when the Gentiles will again be linked with the line of Abram. And even the line of Shem is subdivided. He's called here uh, the father of all the children of Abar. Of course, the name Abar is the root term uh, for the name Hebrew. And it may be related to uh, a different word, um, but sounds the same. What do you call that when words look differently but pronounced the same? There's some technical term. What she said. Okay. The... Uh, but it's one of those, so it's pronounced uh, as Hebrew, but it's spelled differently. And that word means to wander. Those who are wandering, not settled, part of a caste of society that has no place in that society. And many people think that refers to the Hebrews, children of Israel wandering in the wilderness. Whatever the case, 
He's the father of the line which becomes the line of Abram. So we see here that to be in the line of God's favor is better than having the power of the world. That goodness is better than greatness in the eyes of God. Nimrod was great, but not blessed. The Hebrews were not great. They've been forced to wander the ancient Near East and the modern-day Middle East for centuries. For a small part of their history, they've had a land. But for all of their history, they've had to defend it, fight for it, lose it, and regain it. It has never known peace for more than one generation. In the grand scheme of world history, they haven't been what we would consider great. But they have been good. And they've been good because God blessed them. And when they stopped being good, God disciplined them, removed them from the land, sometimes even removing some of them from the earth in order to make them good once again. And yet this goodness, whether it's for them or for us, is never a result of our own efforts, our own strength, our own wisdom, our own talents, abilities, or gifts. It comes to us as a gift from a good God who wants us to reflect him in how we live. We see that look at Ephesians 2. Kudos to Jeff. He mentioned this passage uh, this morning during uh, our congregational meeting. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Goodness is a gift of God. It can't be earned or deserved, not for the ancient Hebrews, not for the modern church. And to find it technically, goodness is the disposition of God to deal generously with all his creation. That's the technical definition. The disposition of God to deal generously with all of his creation. It's the result of a good God working goodness into his people. The Apostle Paul writes again in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. The interesting thing is God never chose anyone because they were good or because they were great or because they came from a great nation. He made them good. He gifted them to be good. He's the one who begins the good work in them. It doesn't matter where they came from. These accounts in Genesis provide the people of God with everything they need to make sense of the rest of the story. These accounts serve the same purpose for us, especially when they're seen in the context of Jesus and his work. And while we have always been a part of this story, as everyone is, through our connection to Jesus, by belonging to him, we, and by that I mean we the church, are grounded and oriented and located at the center, at the heart of this drama. And that reality is deeply significant as we live in a world full of people who are, quite frankly, dazed and confused. They're lost in the airport of life, and they have no idea who they are or what they're doing. I don't know if you remember the movie Lost in Translation. It was nominated for four Academy Awards, winning for Best Original Screenplay, written and directed by Sofia Coppola. It was interesting, moving, numbing, and in the end, sad and haunting film. 
In the story, there's two main characters. The first one is Bob Harris, played by Bill Murray. And Bob is nearer to the end of his working life. His career, which is in show business, is winding down. His marriage is burdensome and unfulfilling, and he's bored with life. The other character is a young woman named Charlotte, played by Scarlett Johansson, who seemingly has everything in front of her, would have every reason to be hopeful and satisfied, but she isn't. And the story has placed both of them in the midst of a Japanese culture that is foreign to each of them, which functions as kind of a metaphor for the whole movie. Two strangers living in a world they don't understand and to which they don't belong. And that is what they are, lost not only in translation, but lost in the world, lost in the universe. And you spend the entire movie waiting for the punchline that never comes, waiting for the plot twist that never shows up, waiting for the big climactic ending that never happens. And in the end, it just sort of fades away. Two people having intersected briefly as they continue to meander aimlessly through the universe, fading away and disappearing into the crowd. As I said, it's a haunting movie. The movie is, in fact, a clever parable about modern life. All around us are people who are characters in search of a plot. Who have no idea that there's a storyline out there that makes sense of a confusing world. And it doesn't make perfect sense or consistent sense because those who perceive that world, you and I and everyone else, don't have all of our gauges right. We don't have all of our instruments calibrated properly. In fact, there's part of the story, since it comes from the mind of an infinite God, which is going to be beyond our ability to grasp this side of heaven. And yet that which is beyond us is not enough to derail us from what God has revealed to us in his word, which has at its heart, at its center, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's the story that the church belongs to, in which it has been given the task of proclaiming and inviting those around us to understand the plot which up to now has escaped them, so they can move from the periphery of the story into the very heart of the story. I think this is one of the tragedies of postmodernism. If you don't believe in that, relativism. Because the message that comes out of these sorts of worldviews is that there is no big story out there. There's no overarching reality that makes sense of our individual realities, that makes sense of our lives. There's just small stories, lesser stories. But the problem is those stories are never big enough. We were wired for something different. Our individual lives aren't big enough to provide any sense of meaning. Our families aren't big enough our tribes aren't big enough. Our nation isn't big enough. The world isn't big enough. We need a story that includes the entire universe and covers all of history. Anything less will not do and will not satisfy. And the degree that we're disconnected from that story, God's story, his redemptive work, to the degree that we're disconnected from that story, to that degree we will struggle with a sense of lostness and identity. We could become lost in translation. There's a message in that for believers and unbelievers alike. 
Friends, let me challenge you as strongly as I know how to give yourself to this, to let this reality so grip you that you cannot not tell people your story, this story, and invite them to know what you know and are still coming to know as God continues to work his purposes out in your life. As part of this story, he calls us, Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so that at the conclusion of the story, when it ends, that we might see with the Apostle John, Revelation 7, behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in our hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the nations from every nation, starting with all the ones listed here in Genesis 10. You see, even at the beginning, God never forgot the end of the story. And that story begins here in Genesis. It's a story which is all about God and all about his grace. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a mysterious passage, perhaps full of as many questions as we can ask and certainly answer. Yet it's meant to equip us and encourage us, to edify us. So help us to remember that you have placed us in the midst of nations to be a blessing. Help us to remember that you care about those nations, even the ones that are so far away from us. Help us to remember that our enemies are cousins. Help us to distinguish between earthly prosperity and heavenly blessing. Help us to remember that it is your unmerited favor which establishes your people in the house of the Lord and not our own works, not our own righteousness, not our own goodness. And help us to remember, Lord, that the goodness which you bestow on your people is better than the greatness which the world describes. Lord, help us to see ourselves in your story. That from beginning to end, all peoples are called to be with you. Let us never forget that. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.